rocks in the treetop all the day long, hopping and a bopping and a singing his song. All the little birds on Jaybird Street look to hear the robin go tweet, 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 rockin' robin. And welcome back to Dialogue De Novo, a podcast about ideas out of the Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Dialogue De Novo, and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jake and I try to publish a Dialogue episode every Tuesday and a Denews episode every Friday. For upcoming episodes, we will be covering the Laquan McDonald, James Van Dyke police trial, mental health, atheism versus religion, and more. Unfortunately, Jake couldn't attend this discussion, so I went at it alone with Dean Kaufman. Dean Michael J. Kaufman is the Dean of the Law School, as well as a professor of law, founding director of the Education Law and Policy Institute, and director of Institute for Investor Protection. He has published dozens of books and countless law review articles in the areas of his expertise, including education law and policy, securities regulation and litigation, civil procedure, and jurisprudence. After graduating magna cum laude from Kenyon College, Dean Kaufman received his law degree from the University of Michigan Law School, where he won the law school's American Judicature Society Award. After law school, he clerked for the Honorable Nathaniel R. Jones of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and practiced securities and civil rights litigation in one of the world's largest law firms. Dean Kaufman was also elected to three terms on the Board of Education of a large, diverse school district in the Chicago area, serving as the board's president and vice president. In addition, Dean Kaufman is a public arbitrator for securities disputes and delivers bar examination review lectures for thousands of law students throughout the country each year in the areas of civil procedure, federal jurisdiction, agency, and business organizations. Dean Kaufman has been at Loyola Chicago School of Law for 33 years and was named interim dean before the 2016-2017 school year and named permanent dean last year. We discussed his role as dean, Judaism, the cultural assessment findings and recommendations from the survey that came out yesterday, as well as his keynote speech slash Seattle University Law Journal article entitled Social Justice and the American Law School Today, since we are made for love. Without further ado, Dean Kaufman. All right, on today's episode, we've got Dean Kaufman. Dean Kaufman, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Good to be here. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, I wanted to start by, um, well, Talking about your role as dean of the law school, I'm not. I'm sure that there are many business aspects that go into it that we can touch on, but uh, I, I don't exactly know what the role of a dean of a law school constitutes. So, sure. Th- uh, thank you so much for asking, and it'll pick up. It'd be a pleasure um, to answer. And I, before I begin, I just want to say um, how proud I am of um, of you and and uh, your co-founder of. Uh, Dialogue De Novo um, for coming forward with this idea and for trying very hard to bring our community together around dialogue, um, knowing that um, we all can disagree on key issues that confront the community and our society around us and do so um, respectfully and learn from each other. And 
if this forum does it, and I think so far so good, it's a tremendous uh, advance in our community. I appreciate your efforts. I know it takes a lot of time and, and energy and leadership, and um, you're to be complimented, and, and we're very proud of your efforts, so thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I, um, I was, uh, like we were talking about before, I, I, I have said this is both the best and worst thing I've done to right. myself in law school. It's, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun, and I've, sure. uh, we've really enjoyed talking to uh, about various different issues. I think we've got one, we've got a couple coming up on mental health, Laquan McDonald, things like that. And so it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's starting to take off and Jake and I are having a lot of fun doing right. it. And, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate you saying so. And I know you've said that by all means, we feel free to criticize the administration, <laughs> sure. but you have been overly supportive and we thank you for that as well. Well, it's really related to your question, which is, you know, what what is my role as dean? And uh, we can talk a lot about sort of the individual aspects of the job, but um, when all is said and done, um, my real role is to bring our community together, all stakeholders in our community, and that includes students, of course, faculty, the administrative team, our alumni, and the, really the city mm -hmm. and the community surrounding the school together in one shared vision of educational excellence for our students and for the community around us. Uh, and one way to do that is to make sure that we talk to each other and listen from each other. Um, we have so much to learn from each other, especially on issues of, of tremendous moment in our community, um, and especially on issues that in which people disagree respectfully. And if this uh, project does bring our community together, and again, I think it has, uh, it's a great way to um, advance that goal. So that's my overall uh, objective in being dean, which is to bring our community together and achieve a shared vision of educational excellence. There are many ways to do that, and the role of dean is really all-encompassing. I have found um, in doing it that I love every aspect of the job, um, and I think that's unusual. Um, some jobs have, uh, in fact, most jobs have aspects that are disagreeable. And that's not true in this job. I love every aspect of it. It is relentless, though. It's, um, it never ends, and um, it really is. There's no border in my uh, personal and work life, and in part that's because I've lived here at Loyola um, with the folks here for now 33 years. It's been a part of my life and my family's life for most of my adulthood, um, and I was a faculty member for a good part of that time and then became uh, academic dean for 11 years under Dean Yellen and learned a tremendous amount from him. The role of academic dean is really more about uh, the classes and the curriculum and scheduling and the uh, educational goals of the school. And I've never really abandoned those as dean. Those are still the first and foremost priority in my mind. I'm blessed, though, to have had the ability to work with first Spencer Waller, who is the interim associate dean for academic affairs, who did a fantastic job of academic uh, leadership in the law school. And then now um, Zelda Harris, who is the, the current um, Dean of Academic Affairs and does a sensational job in really leading and managing aspects of the academic life of our school. So together we work on the academic side of things, but the Dean's job goes uh, beyond the internal workings of the school and focuses a lot on the impact of the school on the community around us. So making sure the students get a first-rate education and if they have jobs awaiting them when they graduate is a big part of the dean's job. Make sure the alumni base is incredibly engaged and, and uh, loyal to the school. You know, we have 12,000 registered alums 
wow. um, many of whom are in Chicago, but many are not in Chicago. And I see it as a big part of my role to make sure that they're fully engaged in the life of the school, that they give their time and their talent, um, and so many of them do. They're, as you know, they're here on weekends and at nights, coaching, mentoring, um, adjunct teaching for our students. Uh, and of course, they give their, ta- their treasure as well. A lot of them donate um, tremendous amounts of money to support our school, especially our students uh, through scholarships. Um, and, you know, I've, I've often said um, I really want the alums to be engaged in the school for all kinds of reasons, and I, I'm trying very hard to make one part of that engagement, frankly, their resources. But we don't just, you know, ask alums for money for the heck of it. We are really dedicated on two uh, aspects of their giving that are really critical to our enterprise. And number one, and by far the most important one, is making sure that every student, incoming student, who is admitted to this law school and therefore is qualified to come here and be an incredibly good lawyer upon leaving, every one of those students who wants to come here and gets into Loyola um, will come and will not fail to come here for financial need. And we are extremely close to reaching that goal, in part because the university has helped us along the road by helping us discount our tuition to manageable levels, but more importantly, uh, due to our alums, thanks to our alums who have given generously for scholarship support to make sure our students can afford to come to Loyola. Um, And so, you know, if I can say that no student um, will not come here for financial reasons, uh, a large part of my goal as dean will be accomplished, at least on that aspect of my job. The other aspect of alumni giving that's really important to us is to make sure our faculty is supported in their efforts. And that has a big spectrum of ways to do that, and alums have been really generous in doing that as well. So, you know, a a long way of answering your question is a lot of my work involves stakeholders outside the school, um, including alums and including the community at large. The practicing bar is a big part of our efforts. The American Association of Law Schools is a big part of what I do, as is the American Bar Association in terms of outreach. So um, unlike really the academic dean, which focuses mostly on the internal yeah. aspects, the, the dean's job is a lot focused on the external stakeholders around the school um, without, of course, um, giving up or failing to consider the internal workings as well. In fact, the real key is the linkages between what we do every day in the law school for our students by way of their academic uh, enterprise and how that connects with the world outside the school. Yeah, I think... Uh uh, I think fundraising often gets a bad rap, and you just explain very well why it, it it there are certainly benefits to it, and why it's necessary, and how it, it, you're actually able to put it into action. I think people, a lot of people, roll their eyes when they see uh, or when they hear from you know politicians fundraising and things like that, because how much do you really care that somebody gets to keep their political job? But as far as uh, being in a, it really has changed my, what you just said kind of changed my aspect on donating to schools. And um, yeah, no, I, I, I do understand that outlook of trying to make it affordable. That's certainly one of the reasons I came here. Uh, I came here for a few. One was the child law clinic. Mm-hmm. I, I spoke to quite a number of people uh, in DC, in Alabama, in, uh, well, I didn't really speak to anybody. LA, but uh, in DC and Alabama, and they all said they mentioned here, I believe Marquette and a couple other places. And after I toured the school, in the courtroom uh, was 
second to none to all uh, toward about seven or eight other schools. Right. That way, I just remember walking in there and looking around and thinking, "This is incredible." But uh, that the child law program coupled with the uh, I know I wanted to do to be a uh, a litigator and the the advocacy department here is phenomenal as well. A- and then the decision was made very easily by. Uh, scholarship money that was offered. Right. Very so good. yeah, it was yeah, it, it was um, the only factor that I really considered as far as not coming here would be the cost of living in Chicago, right. not here. Right. And and I I wasn't gonna let that stop me. I figured yeah. it out, and that was yeah. So it was. Um, it's been yeah yeah. I I, I appreciate your work for helping <laughs> me directly. Well, uh, that's very good to hear. And, yeah. You know, you're a great example of why we work so hard to try to get make that happen because. You know, it's nice that you came. We're thrilled that you're here. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> but no, I do. I do appreciate. It. I will say this: this is actually not a bad segue uh, into the what we were the next part. I, uh, um, I'm Jewish. I know you are as well. And I grew up uh, in Alabama. I went to a non-denominational private school called St. James. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I. I did know that this was a Jesuit school and all that, and I, I, I had hesitations about coming here. Uh, some of it had to do with uh, anti-Semitism. Some of it had to do with uh, I wasn't sure how welcoming. I didn't know much about Jesuit community. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. – I'm Jewish. Again, I didn't – it wasn't like yeah. a – I can tell you a lot about us, but right. I – yeah. But um, – you were named interim dean right before I made my decision, and so that was actually coupled with the, that. And it's an odd thing to say because I realize how arbitrary of a thing it is in the in the long run. But the fact that it, it was very interesting to me that you being named dean of a Jesuit school actually made me more likely to come here. <laughs> so I did. I did. Uh, I won't say it was the deciding factor, but it was a element where I was like, ah, this will be fine. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I've been here at Loyola for 33, 33 years, yeah. and I have never um, felt more at home in any work environment that I've been in, and I've been in some really wonderful ones before coming here. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's it's my goal as dean to bring us together um, around shared values and a shared vision of excellence. One way that I, I believe um, is the best to do that is to build on distinctive strengths. And we can talk about uh, our vision of what those strengths are, but they'll be very familiar to anyone listening. Um, in my view, our distinctive strength starts and ends with our Jesuit Catholic mission and identity. And it always has, since I've been here, been an incredibly vital part of this law school. And I use the word vital sort of in two senses. Vital in the sense that it's indispensable to who we are, mm-hmm. but also vital in the sense it's got vitality. It's a living, breathing mission. And I've always felt tremendous affinity and affection for the Jesuit Catholic mission, primarily because I thought it'd be incredibly compatible with um, the Judaism that I've known growing up. Um, you know, what, what sect were you? I was. Ref- I'm a reformed Jew, reform? mm-hmm. but um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in conservative temples as well. Sure. And in my family, 
the, the aspect of Judaism that was most meaningful to us, apart from the family rituals and traditions, was the notion of, of repairing the world uh -huh. and, and giving back. And, you know, the phrase justice, justice shall you pursue, is sort of etched in my being from my family and my upbringing. And um, the connection between the command in Judaism to repair the world and to pursue justice, not just to know about justice, but to mm -hmm. pursue it, and the Jesuit Catholic mission of service to others and of um, really caring for the whole person, it's incredibly tight, that connection. And I, with great pride, can stand in front of incoming classes, as I just did, um, as they enter orientation, and say, you know, um, our Jesuit Catholic mission calls us as people from, of all faiths to care deeply for each other, care personalis, and to care for each other and to use our talents and our tenacity and our tenderness in the service of and with others and feel like that is, has resonance for um, people of faith but also people who uh, are wavering in their faith or have no faith. Mm -hmm. It's a social justice mission that um, is stronger than secular. I don't want to minimize it by saying it's secular, although it's got tremendous um, social justice roots that, that I think people who don't aren't, aren't people of faith can, can latch on to. But it speaks to people of all faiths as well. It certainly speaks to me. And I have tremendous pride in saying that we are a Jesuit Catholic law school, knowing that for me it means um, sort of the irreducible minimum of caring for each other as whole people and serving others with our talent and tenacity and tenderness. And also, you know, I've said this before as well, um, I believe that this, in this community we all have an abiding faith you know, even those who don't have faith in a particular religious um, upbringing, we all have a faith that there's progress in history. Mm -hmm. You know, that the um, the arc of the moral universe is long, very long, Good but it does justice. bend toward justice. Yeah. And that's a faith that, you know, there's progress to be made if we just put our, our minds to it and work together. And those values seem to be irreducible, uh, at least in my upbringing and also in mm -hmm. this law school. And if I can find a way to build on that distinctive strength, um, you know, it's a good part of my mission as, as dean. Yeah. I think there's, uh, I agree with you, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pessimism in the world right now, and I think, I think to have, let's not, we, we don't need to get into politics, but let me just say that a lot of this was here long before Trump. I think um, this a lot of that comes from the 24-hour news cycle of we need to see everything immediately as fast as possible and it's it, there's a argument of are we better informed or are we just overwhelmed and I do think it that breeds pessimism and there's a lot of and people often forget those things there's also uh, I, I agree with you we you know they love your fellow man type thing and they're um, I am not, I mean, I'm clearly not as passionate as you are about that mission, but I do, I am here for the child law program. So mm -hmm. I do have an aspect of that, and that, that, that was the whole reason I went to right. law school. So I do think that that's inherent in some people. It just depends on what their view of what you have just said is. Uh, also, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, societal progress. We actually, I talked to, uh, we had, during our talk with Professor Breen, one of the things I mentioned was that there is a that basically built into America's DNA is that we have accomplished 
phenomenal things. We have we we cured polio. We landed on the moon. We put a computer in everyone's lap. We yeah, we've decimated the uh, global poverty rate by 75%. We've done many, many things. And baked into our DNA since our very inception has always been we can do better. We have to do better. We must do better. It's the argument of why I think we should go to Mars because it's the next thing we have mm-hmm. to go to. We already went to the moon. With its, yeah. you know, so there's a... Um, it's a... I agree with you, you know, that how, how can we keep building on society? I know that what you're talking about dives a little into your Seattle University speech and paper, but I do want to, I wanted to touch on the climate survey that Great. you said just came out. Um, yeah. So first off, who was, what, what was, the, it was the diversity survey for the school? Right. So, um, yeah. you know, for reasons that we can talk about, um, I hope we will talk about, um, before I became dean, uh, and, and when Dean Yellen was dean and I was associate dean, um, he and I felt very strongly about the need to strengthen our community, particularly in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sure. And Dean Yellen was a really leader, not just in this law school, but throughout the country among law schools in doing that. And I learned a lot from him on how to do that, how to go about doing that. He did things like create the, diver- the Dean's Diversity Council, which is made up of alums and students and student leaders. Uh, as well as faculty administration, sure. and they make, met quite often and came up with some really good ideas to create um, a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable community. And I wanted to build on that as well, um, both because I saw what he did and thought it was terrific, but also because ingrained in me has been a desire to do this since I was a, a kid, really. Yeah. Um, it's just part of my DNA as well. Um, and so when I became dean, um, we built on the, diverse, the Dean's Diversity Council, um, kept that going and made it stronger in my view, and we created something called um, the Diversity Inclusion Working Group, which is uh, chaired by Professor Juan Perea okay. and consists of faculty, administration, and students. Um, and if, if you'd like to hear more, Juan Perea was episode one. Go that's ahead. right, yeah. that's right, and Juan, Juan <laughs> is chairing that group terrifically. Yeah. Um, and one of the th- things that we decided to do was to partner with um, Dr. Aaron Reeves, um, who is the head of a, gr- a company called Nexians. And Nexians and Dr. Reeves together are really one of the most respected teams working on issues of inclusion and diversity and equity for law schools and law firms. You know, there are a lot of uh, really highly qualified consulting firms that work on equity and inclusion and diversity for organizations. Um, this one in particular does an outstanding job with law schools and law firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Reeves actually has come to our law school often as an adjunct faculty member, as a teacher, as a mentor, working a lot with Professor Josie Goff in, in, in her classroom uh, presentations. And so we partnered with Dr. Reeves, and Dr. Reeves came to a, one of our faculty retreats about two years ago and talked to the faculty about implicit bias and cultural competency. And we were extremely impressed with her work and the work of Nexians. And so we decided to commission her and her group to do a, um, a climate survey, diversity and inclusion climate survey of our students and our most recent alums. And last fall, the fall of 2017, the survey went out to all of our current students and our most recent alums and asked them questions about the climate um, and the culture at the law school. And uh, in the spring of 2018, we started to get the results. And then um, Dr. Reeves um, came to another retreat that we had, a faculty administration, 
in May of 2018. And then over the summer, they collated the results, analyzed the results of the climate survey, and then just the other day came up with their final report, um, which I, um, this morning, made public to the entire community. Um, their, their report is lengthy, it's comprehensive, it's data-driven, it's got both quantitative and qualitative um, survey results that are collated and, and analyzed in the report, and it's got an executive summary and it's got recommendations at the end. Um, it's an outstanding report, and I think, um, as I mentioned to the, to the community, one way into it is to think about the three major conclusions that Nexians reached um, based on their analysis of the data that are set forth in their executive summary. Okay. And I repeated those those conclusions, I quoted the executive summary yeah. in my email to the community today, along with a link to the survey itself. I hope everyone in the community will read it carefully sure. and will we'll digest it and realize um, that there <laughs> Part are... Part of me wishes we would have done this next week because I, I would have loved to take a look at it, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I can, if, if it's okay, I can... I mean, I can, Come on back, yeah. I can back or yeah. I can, um, you know, if, if time permits, I can do right now um, the, the three takeaways, really, the conclusions in the executive summary yeah. are these. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, one is um, that we're doing a really good job that, um, for, for the most part, students across all cohorts are very satisfied with their education here. And um, that manifests itself in their survey results in terms of questions like, um, you know, is the learning environment satisfactory? Are the, are the faculty, um, you know, have, do they have high expectations for us? Are they accessible? Is the administrator team accessible? Questions like that um, all were answered across cohorts in a very positive way, mm -hmm. such that, you know, sort of the bottom line is that 88% 88, 88 of all survey re, uh, respondents express satisfaction with their, their life here at Loyola, their overall satisfaction with their choice of coming to Loyola. And in the scheme of things, according to Dr. Rees, that's an incredibly high number if you benchmark it with other law schools and other organizations. It's a really outstanding result. So that's the first takeaway, is that we're doing really, really well as a, as a community. This was the, sir, you sent this to us, to the, was it, it's a, it was done amongst students? Yes, all students. Any alumni or just? All the, students okay. and recent alums. Okay, yeah. so, and, all right, so that it, that's actually interesting that it's 88% because the, the numbers that you usually hear is that when people respond to these surveys, these random surveys, they're either, uh, the the majority of the time, the only time people respond is when they're terrible. And you, you know, when people want to complain about something, because when things are going good, they don't really care to fill it in. So the fact that it's 88% is remarkable, yeah. It is remarkable, and you know, objectively, you know, um, I'm not in this business, but according to Dr. Reeves, it is, if you compare it to our peer schools and aspirational schools and other law schools, mm -hmm. uh, it's very, very strong. Um, so that's number one. Number two, and I think it's the most important um, finding of the survey, and I want to focus on it a bit, is that despite the fact that there are incredibly high numbers of satisfaction rates across cohort groups, they um, divided the results based on what they call minority respondents and non-minority respondents. And those terms are defined, they're self-identified minority students and self-identified non-minority students, mm -hmm. otherwise known in the survey results as white students. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the survey defines these terms more, more um, nuanced than I'm doing now. But um, the bottom sure. line I is... Mean, we, I, I would, we would both be considered white, but we would both be considered minorities. 
That's right. Because, so, yeah. so I understand what you're saying. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So for the purpose of this survey, we would consider um, minor, uh, majority students or white students. Yeah. But um, having said that, um, there are differentials in the responses uh, among minority and non-minority students. Um, and so what that means is, for example, if 90% of white people are satisfied with a, with a, a metric in the results, mm-hmm. only 80% of non-white people are. And those, from Dr. Reed's point of view, it's those differentials that are really critical in their analysis because that says to her, at certain levels of differential responses, that um, the, the experience of people is different uh-huh. in this law school on certain issues based primarily on their race. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, it's not many differentials that are significant in her, in her view, but there are some that are important. For example, um, one differential is the extent to which I feel the people of my race are respected here is very positive among mm-hmm. all cohorts, but more positive among white students than on, among non-white students. Mm-hmm. And the differential, even at the high levels of response, is cause for improvement. Yeah. And so um, the response in the executive summary is the law school has a, quote, terrific opportunity to build on its already strong community. And I see that as a real opportunity to, to work together and to make our, our results even stronger. That's number two. Yeah. Number three is we're doing a really good job of doing that already. We've, okay. we've implemented some really strong um, best practices already, and we could do some others that they recommended, and we will do so. Yeah. So, um, you know, overall, I don't want to sugarcoat it because there's room for improvement. There always is, and we will take up that mantle and improve. Um, and do some things that NextGen's recommended, some things we've already done, sure. to make sure we're as strong as we can. One of the things they recommended, and it's not a, um, a surprise to us, and it's something that we thought about doing before the recommendation, is to appoint a new position, a position of what they call ombudsperson, someone the students can go to for assistance, resources, some help if they're encountering problems, someone who can work with our diversity and inclusion working group and work with other organizations to make sure students have a, have a shoulder of voice for them. And we've done that already. In the time we, could, we got the results, and now we have appointed Professor Josie Goff as our Dean of Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity. And that was announced today, really publicly. And I'm so thrilled to be make that announcement. Those of you who know Professor Goff, know that she is the perfect person for that job, for that position. She's thrilled to do it. Um, she'll continue to work on her externship program as she's done such a great job of. But we'll take on this as well. And she's already, as I understand, already been consulted by students for her advice. Um, it's really a wonderful... After one day? Yeah. Wow. Wonderful thing for our, for our school to be able to do. That's, wow. Yeah. Um, that's that's great. Uh, do we... When do we start calling her, Dean? Uh, right now. Immediately? Back to immediately. Yes. Yes. Immediately. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good Absolutely. to know. Uh, wow. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that was. I was going to ask, where are we doing great? Where are we not doing great? And that you kind of, you, you've kind of touched on that already. I, um, I do want to get into. Uh, I, I know that I've. I believe I've talked to you briefly about this. I'm not sure, but. Um, there does seem to be, as with most law schools, an overwhelming majority in, with as far as far as diversity of thought, yeah. an overwhelming majority uh, of liberal leaning, and it seems to have, uh, and there's also very few, but it seems to have dwarfed a the conservative leaning students, 
and I didn't know if that was included in the survey at all. Or it's a, like it's a great point. So there's no quantitative data to support that, except that, and it's a big exception, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Reeves did say uh, in front of the entire faculty administrative team at our retreat in May that the qualitative responses, the survey results, the narratives, mm -hmm. um, had a thread into, in them that were along those lines, that um, people who were um, conservative-leaning um, felt that their voice was not as heard as those who were not. And she made a big point of telling us that at that retreat. And um, that's really important information to have. Yeah. And so uh, in some ways that's harder, it's more nuanced to sort of to sort of intervene on, yeah. but it's a really important part of our work ahead, absolutely. Right. Um, diversity of thought is the, the backbone of this law school. It has to be of any law, law school. Mm -hmm. We have to allow for um, perspectives that are, are different, that are hard, that are difficult, that are challenging, that cause struggle and even some degree of discomfort. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we don't learn. Right. And it's that's the that's the freedom of speech argument. Every right. uh, instead of shutting down ideas, just hear them out and then tell them why right. they're bad ideas. Right. Which I mean, heck, yeah. that's what the whole podcast that we're right, doing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we talk. You know, the exception yeah. is, and this is a really difficult um, line to to draw, and it's almost going to be case by case and nuanced. Is there are times when even speech, although it's really high value political speech, um, can be hurtful and it can interfere with the learning process. And where that happens, you know, my my primary goal, as is true of every administrator and faculty member here, is learning. Uh -huh. We're all about teaching our students how to think and how to sure. act like attorneys and professionals. And so if something happens that interferes with the learning process, we've got to be very vigilant about that. Yeah. Um, and so that's the only line that I would draw. I would say I actually, and I don't know if this is unique to our law school, although I like to think it is. I, this is the first educational experience, formal educational experience I've ever had, uh, where I was taught how to think, not exactly, not what to think. I, you know, I wasn't just given things to memorize and said, you know, right. good, good luck. And uh, I do really enjoy. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, I, I wanted to just press you on that a little bit. What do you? What are you, what do you mean when you say hate speech in are you in classrooms? I don't. I, I'm confused as to what you're. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't mention the phrase hate speech, but yeah. But, um, I forget what you. Yeah. But um, if there's a certain hateful, language, hurtful. Yeah, yeah hurtful. I mean, sorry. Hurtful. I mean, the, there are some, you know, there are some things that even though there are words, um, can be so traumatic or traumatizing to a student or to a, a community that they interfere with the learning process. And that might be a different um, threshold for, for different students. Mm -hmm. um, and I just have to make sure, as in my role as dean, as educator in this law school, that we never interfere with the learning process. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, my, my, that's the only line to draw. It's not about the content or the viewpoint, uh, or even, um, you know, in my mind, hate speech, where it does become offensive and interfere with the learning process, is something to be very vigilant about. Okay. But the but the real key is does it interfere with the learning process? Okay, I yeah. Okay, I hear what you're saying. It, it so, right. That sounds. It really sounds like you're. It really sounds like we're trying to keep it out of the classroom as opposed to yeah. So to where there's 
open dialogue is allowed in the halls, but do not, yeah. No, I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I think it's really important to have open dialogue in the classrooms mm -hmm. and to confront um, so, yeah, ideas that, you disagree with. That's not what I meant. I meant as far as uh, as far as a as a uh, discomfort level. There's there's a difference between. How do I put this? It is. I feel like what you're trying to say is the professor's job would be to bestow upon us this knowledge and then it's our job to disseminate it outside the classroom um I, no yeah i don't i don't think i would say that i think you know um sometimes i'm wrong no 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 <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, it's a really good question i'm trying yeah. to think um the clearest way to say it um so you know thankfully in law school for the most part our classrooms are not um didactic in the sense that um we're not usually about lecturing to students. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the things that, um, we have a lot of students from outside the United States who come to visit us. Um, I had a, a group in last week from Germany, for example, and another one group coming from Chile next week. Mm -hmm. And they'll sit in our classes and they'll be very surprised at the level of interaction between students and, and the faculty, which is very uncommon among um, graduate education throughout the world. Um, one of our hallmarks in this law school and beyond is interaction among students and faculty around the ideas in a classroom, sure. um, that is a huge part of the learning process, the how to think, not the what to think. Yeah. To consider carefully ideas you disagree with, listen carefully to who's making them and what the real idea of the kernel of truth is there, to respond to it affectionately or not, depending on your level of, res of uh, res responsiveness to it, but also have tremendous respect for it. Um, I believe that the key to learning um, and this is sort of borne out by my research on educational psychology. Mm -hmm. I is, saw that's one of your uh, yeah. focus points in your really your entire career. Yeah, yeah. and so when all, when all said and done, uh, I think the key is to be able to develop a habit of mind and of heart to be able to um, really understand, appreciate, and respect the thoughts, feelings, and intentions of others, especially those you disagree with. And especially those who maybe appear to be different from you, and to um, incorporate those thoughts, feelings, and intentions, and respond to them helpfully. Sure. Uh, if you can do that, um, you'll learn a tremendous amount about humanity, but also you become an incredibly good lawyer. Uh, you know, the core value of lawyering is to really um, appreciate, understand, and respect the thoughts, feelings, and intentions of others especially those who are adversary counsel, especially those who are a counterparts in a negotiation, especially those who are your clients, and respond helpfully um, to what you really are you know, hearing and respecting and listening to. Um, and what that means is in a classroom, you have to have a, a space for open dialogue. And in some ways, the, the lack of comfort in hearing an idea um, literally gives you cognitive dissonance which makes your your brain grow and without that level of discomfort there's a very little chance of being you know having your brain really challenged and growing that's really the core of education um, where discomfort becomes hurt though and and physical pain or emotional pain that interferes with the learning process and it's a very hard line to draw but it can't it, but it can be drawn okay um. Okay, that makes sense. I've, I would say the 
biggest learning aspect for me and, and as soon as you know it's a it's an interesting segue here but as soon as um, my first year legal writing professor um, as we were going through the argument and it, was, it was funny because I would say the, the biggest change in my mindset is how to basically clear out all of the points you hear you hear a topic and then you hear 3,000 yes. opinions and some of them have that are from people are from things that somehow they connected seven steps down the road that have nothing to do with this argument mm-hmm. but it has all of a sudden become an important aspect of an argument right and it shouldn't be and one of the biggest aspects that that I learned in legal writing he the way the professor said it to us was I'm going to teach you how to go through a case look at the ruling clear out this this and this and then you'll get to the grunt of your argument and this is the only part that matters because all of the other stuff is judges kind of disseminating well this is connected to this and this is connected he's like so you'll learn to clear it out and that's what's going to make you a good lawyer and that's why your families are going to hate you and I have noticed that as I've gotten into arguments with like I've got three older brothers I'll get into arguments with them and they'll and within you know a few minutes they'll just apparently they think I'm a lot smarter than they think <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well funny. that's a great point I mean um, I mentioned this at orientation um, to the incoming students but um, Howard Gardner who's one of our foremost educational psychologists talks about the real goal of, of higher education is to give students habits of mind and heart that they'll need for the future. And there are five of them. Uh, and one of them is what you just described. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mind that can sort. Yeah. That can separate out um, different issues. You know, um, we all know that one of the big skills in law school exams is issue spotting. Yeah. But also it's, you know, IRAC, which really is about categorizing different aspects of an argument. It's a sorting function. Right. It's a huge mind you'll need for the future as a lawyer. Another mind is discipline. Mm-hmm. There's got a certain thoroughness and diligence and attention to detail that can be habituated, right. he would say. And the other three are creative. Believe it or not, it's important to be creative as a lawyer, to think outside the box, to actually uh, approach a problem from different perspectives, um, and to actually think about wonder again, you know, kind of rekindle the, the aspect of wonder you had as a kid, mm-hmm. which gives sort of everything a fresh look to it. Um, but the other two uh, habits of mind are ethics, and the final one, and the most important one, is respect. Sure. So I, I believe a good part of legal education is about um, perspective taking, putting yourself in other people's shoes, and having respect for that point of view. I would agree with that, and that actually that would really come into hand, in handy when you're dealing with clients. Exactly. Day, yeah. So exactly. I agree. Yeah. Uh, hey, yeah, I I do want to throw this out, and, I, and then we'll move on to this. Yeah. But I, um, when I was home, I want to say last year, yeah, it would have been around Yom Kippur. I uh, was connected to a weekend, so I went home for it, and, and about four hours before my flight, there was a documentary playing at a local theater. Uh, there was a former governor of Alabama named Don Siegelman. He he is pro- he was probably a political prisoner. I don't know if you know the story. I don't know. Okay, so he was brought up on corruption charges. Now, I'm not going to say he wasn't corrupt, because I'm not going to go there, but what he went down for was appointing um, someone to the head of the health board. And they said that that guy bought his position. Mm-hmm. 
because he had donated to the Don Siegelman campaign. Well, that guy was the CEO of HealthSouth, which is a huge corporation, and he had already held that position two or three times before, and Don Siegelman had to beg him to take the job. So the fact that he went down for that is right. insane. But um, I'm watching this movie, and one of the things that they, you know, they say that because, uh, oh, he was running for re-election in 2002. He was a Democrat, Don Siegelman. Bush was in office, and they basically say, which it could be that uh, Karl Rove set him up to, you know, found something because they couldn't have an Alabama governor be a Democrat. Found something, got him. And they start talking, and, and they, they show this whole, mo- whole movie's fascinating, and at one point in the movie, they bring up Eric Holder. And they say that Eric Holder used to work at, he, he was a uh, managing partner of a firm or a partner at a firm that did major major business with Carl Rove and my only thought was that has nothing to do with the point you're trying to prove right now I don't understand why you're why you're bringing this in and as I walked out uh, a friend that I was there with said to me I didn't know all that stuff about Eric Holder and I was like that's because it doesn't matter it has nothing to do with anything right yeah but uh, yeah. no it's a really good skill that lawyers develop yeah. which is to separate what's relevant what's from what's irrelevant and Usually, um, with that, to separate people from their ideas. Sure. So it's not a, you know, it's not a, it's pure sophistry to attack a person for an idea. Yeah. You got to confront the idea as if it had tremendous merit on its own. So mm-hmm. it's a, hopefully we 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 have that skill coming out of law school. It's a really important part of what we try to do. Yeah, I think a lot of that what you're saying actually does. I don't want to get into this, but does touch on. Um, there's confusion when you talk about the idea and the sophistry that there's confusion especially in, as, as a Jew especially when it comes to uh, anti-Israel demonstrations and anti that the, the anti-Semitism will uh, will at, at times if not a lot of the time overlap and the people who were saying might not necessarily know that what they're saying is anti-Semitic and so there are, yeah, I, I do hear you. There are confusions in, in that, and that's that's where we've got more work to do. But okay, I wanted we wanted to get into the. You gave a speech at Seattle University, and then wrote a article in the Seattle Law Seattle University Law Review, uh, entitled "Social Justice and American Law School Today: Since We Are Made for Love." I've read it. A lot of it talks about the uh, the Pope's mission. Pope Francis, and this was from last year, correct? That's right. Okay. Uh, let's just dive in. What, in your words, what was what is the overall mission? I know I've got some questions for you, but what was the, what what were you trying to espouse in the yeah. speech? Thanks. So I, yeah. I was uh, asked to uh, deliver the, um, the keynote address at a conference at Seattle University mm-hmm. about the teachings of Pope Francis for a number of different American institutions, including law schools. And um, my keynote was about um, what can we learn from Pope Francis, particularly Laudato Si, um, for how we teach lawyers. And, is that um, what that translates as, Laudato uh, Si? Laudato Si is um, care for our common home. Okay. Uh, it's actually, it's, it's a, um, the full t- title of the encyclical was care for the common home. And it's... Um, Sorry, it's been... Wow, it has been 12 years since I took Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's weird to say that. For so, yeah, I don't feel that old, but anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Laudato Si really yeah. is, is a um, just means um, you know loving God. Sure. But the 
encyclical was really about um, the environment, yeah. um, but about so much more in my mind. So I was invited to deliver this keynote at Seattle University, and um, it was a tremendous opportunity to sort of, in my mind, bring some, together some of the things I've been thinking about really for 33 years at this law school um, in terms of um, how people learn and how we teach, uh, which seems kind of odd because, you know, the, the Pope's encyclical, Laudato Si, was not really about teaching and learning. It was about um, the environment. But throughout the course of the encyclical, the Pope talks about what it means to be human. So, um, you know, the, the teaching begins by um, the Pope saying he wants us to engage in a new dialogue that goes to the heart of what it means to be human. And the, the bottom line there is um, what, me, what it means to be human is, uh, is to have relationships, uh, a much more relational view of human nature than an atomistic one or individual one. And that has tremendous implications for the way in which people develop um, as human beings and with that the way in which they actually learn about their world around them. So, and that struck, struck me as having tremendous connections yeah. with our, our most recent uh, brain research, neuroscience, yeah. and how people learn, which I've done a lot of work on, especially in the ways in which young people learn, mm -hmm. which I've done a lot more work on, um, but also our most recent educational psychology. It turns out the Pope is right, and I remember, frankly, saying this at the keynote address, um, the Pope is right, and catching myself thinking, well, of course the Pope is right, the Pope is always right. <laughs> but what I really meant was um, our most recent brain research, including uh, you know, imaging, uh -huh. um, brain scans, um, confirms the, the Pope's central core focus, which is that um, people learn in relationships. Mm -hmm. No one learns by themselves. Um, the notion that we um, you know, um, learn knowledge from on high, sort of zapped through a tube, is just false. I mean, um, learning is entirely social. Right. And that's been something that um, uh, a psychologist named Lev Vygotsky said 100 years ago that we now know from looking at the way in which the brains light up, parts of brains light up when they, when they interact with others. Um, kids literally learn from, from their people around them, not on their own. Um, from caregivers, from teachers, from um, their peers, and from their environment. Makes sense. Um, and from materials. Uh, and so no, no learning happens without others. And when you realize that, as, as I mm -hmm. think is true, then the question for me, what, what, what's the implication for that for the way in which we teach and the way in which people learn? Well, all learning is social, um, and people don't learn um, really by consuming information. Then what does that say about the way in which we have um, thought about learning for the last 100 years? Okay. The last 100 years has been informed by a behaviorist model of education which everyone in law school and everyone in college and high school and grade school knows it's part of the water around us in teaching. It's the, it's the standardized test, it's grades, it's external rewards and punishments, it's BF Skinner, it's a Skinner box, it's Pavlov. When all is said and done, most of the learning theory is about Pavlovian. Um, the notion is um, when the bell rings, you bark. So, or to put it another way, you bark in order to have the bell ring. So. Um, if you want, you know, bar pressing in rats, the premise is that rats can be trained to press bars upon delivery of food, mm -hmm. what's called operant conditioning. When all is said and done, that is the, the hallmark of every educational approach in the United States and in the world, really, for the last hundred years. It's something that 
you are familiar with, I think, growing up, mm-hmm. something I was familiar with growing up, it's, it's an entire generation beyond who learned that way. It's a source of grades and testing, um, which seems natural and obvious to us, yeah. except that it's really um, not really compatible with the way in which people really learn. They can be trained that way, yeah. and they habituated that way, but it, it, it's not really part of their motivation and their intention to learn. Um, Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. I had a, I don't remember exactly which, it was some math course in high school. I don't, you know, pre-calculus, I don't remember exactly which one, but it was taught by the head football coach, and at one point, uh, that wasn't important, it, I just, it was, but <laughs> at one point, in the first month or two, somebody said, when are we ever going to use this in real life? Yeah. And his response, and now that you mention that, might have been one of the most Pavlovian things I've ever seen. He he would always finish early, and we would talk for like five ten minutes with him after, and that was you know that was a getting to know him more personally. That was that was really nice. But he said, "Okay, this talk," and he he drops his book, which is a I've had to give this every year. I just usually wait a few months. Yeah. And he said, "You're not. This has to do with." helping your memorization skills and your analytical skills. You're not ever going to use this. You're, it's like most people don't use this in their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. You can count how many oranges you're buying. You don't need this. Right. And things like that. And as soon as he said that, there was not another complaint about the sub, the yeah. yeah the subject matter being taught for the rest of the, sem- the year because it was just one of those things that we were conditioned to, okay, so we just have to get through this. Okay. Right. Yeah. I give him credit for being honest about it, but also for saying the real value here is the habit of mind, yeah. of memorization, discipline. Yeah. It's not the content, right? Um, and that's really true. Uh, it should, I think, it really should be true of law school as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, it's a long way of saying that if we were serious about really focusing on the way in which people learn, what would law school look like if we took it seriously? And I'm not about to upend the entire system. I understand we need grades, we need bar exams, we need um, standardized tests. They're not going to go away in my lifetime. Um, the question is, can we augment them with more authentic ways of learning and of assessment? And the answer hey, is I'm yes. charter school. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, and so the rest of the article yeah. is really about strategies to get us closer to the vision of human nature propounded by the Pope. Um, and you know his phrase for that is we were made for love, yeah. not for competition, sure. not um, to you know hurt each other, but to actually cooperate. And again, the beauty of it is that all of the science supports that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if we're harboring under an impression that we're all out to get each other, that you know we're it's a, a zero sum game, and that you know your A is my B, if we're harboring under that impression and the impression is not true. One question we should ask ourselves is who benefits from that? You know, cynically, why are, why have we sustained a view of human development if it's not true? We all know it's not true, yeah. but it's still part of our landscape. And the question is sort of, you know, who benefits from that? Having said all that, you know, you can th- uh, think about it cynically or more positively. Are there ways we can go about teaching students that are more effective and ways of assessing that are more effective? And again, um, there's strategies in the article around those issues. A lot of them are familiar to law students because they proceed on, on the assumption of it's really good to have experiential learning. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pope agrees, brain science agrees, and I think most law students agree that one of the most effective ways to learn to develop habits of mind is by experiencing. Um, and that's clinical settings. The Child Law Center is a great example of that. You know that to be true. Yeah. Um, but also externships, 
peel placements and the like where you actually practice the skills you develop and where the, the substance is as important as the, the processing. Yeah. You know, the, the, yeah. I, uh, so. yeah, I do like that. And there's also, um, I, one of the aspects that I'm not sure if other law schools do this, but one of the aspects I like about here is the, the ABA requires that you have to take a course during externship in order to get credit. And I think Loyal only offers it in here in D.C., in Chicago and in D.C. So far, that's right. Yeah. And I, I clerked for the Supreme Court of Alabama right. in between my first and second year. And I went to Dean Fought and I said, look, you can't convince me that this isn't relative. What can I do? And that was where the – I took an – I did an independent study right. on a, a topic that I covered – that I was working on when I was in Alabama. And it was – I do like that aspect that you, you – Things like that show that you are actually, that the school is actually trying to, because I took a deep dive into a very singular topic, and it shows that you, that not only are you focused on educating us, but you're, fo but you're also focused on, in some ways, helping us educate ourselves, which right. I, which I do like. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, and I know you, uh, you do, at one point you mentioned how the behaviorist approach appears to be cost-effective to provide education to a large number of students, but that not, might not necessarily be the case. And then you talk a little bit about uh, intersubjectivity. I just wanted to jump in there and, yeah. you know. Wait, um, yeah, so yeah. One, of, one of the, um, you know, as I said, if it's true that behaviorism really has been disproven, mm -hmm. and it has in terms of a, of a way people actually learn, then what, why would it still be around? Um, well, one reason is it could be compatible with our our regime. Yeah. I mean, it could find some basis for um, a behaviorist approach to learning in the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. um, that's not true. Uh, there's no evidence of that. Um, in, in fact, anything. Yeah, weren't there classrooms only like nine kids at a time anyway? There's so that, that but also, um, yeah. you know, you, you, we all uh, read our Tocqueville. You know, yeah. and one of the hallmarks of our regime, dating back to the founders, is the, the love that Americans have for associations which comes from human nature. And so the notion that humans are always isolated, you know, nasty, brutish, and short you know, state of nature folks is not really what the framers had in mind. Uh -huh. So that's one, one thing. The other is um, it could be that we, we maintain our approach because it's just cost effective. Yeah. And it has a promise of, you know, behaviorism has... In the short term, sure. Exactly. Yeah. It has, you know, one sage on the stage with yeah. many, many students. So, right. you know, the student-faculty ratio can be one to a million, presumably, and that's very cost-effective. Mm -hmm. The problem is that um, by any measure, the way in which we go about educating our students in this country is anything but cost-effective. Yeah. We put our research in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's, you know, we get very little bang for our buck. Right. So that's not a reason to keep it, is right. the point. And that, that's where I come out by thinking, well, if there's no, if it's not rooted in the regime, yeah. if it's not cost-effective, really, and if it's not really about um, human development, you know, what, what, why is it still around? It right. could be inertia, mm -hmm. or it could be that people benefit from it quite a bit. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, yeah, and actually, uh, I remember touching on this. That's, uh, I'm pretty moderate in politically, but when it comes to schools, I'm very liberal in that. Uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say that because I guess school choice is kind of turning into a conservative leaning, but that doesn't matter. In that, I, I do think that there should be alternatives that we're exploring. I do think that the uh, one of the things you mentioned was, uh, and I wanted to ask you about it because I disagree. With, I, I'm not exactly sure with the, your view on 
capitalism was from the paper, but uh, it talks about how basically one big victim of capitalism has been our education system and how, and I mean, that's glaringly obvious in that schools are funded by their neighborhoods. And when you're in a poor neighborhood, you're going to have a poor school. And when you're going to have a poor school, you're going to get poor results. And that's the, um, and that's a, the uh, terrible, you know, that, and when I say this is where I get more liberal, I think schools should be palaces. I think teachers should be making six figures. It should be our absolute mm-hmm. most, most imperative thing that we do. But having said that, uh, I did want to jump back there. Um, so, with as far as the capitalism, what what were your views in this on capitalism as a whole, or was it just capitalism as it pertains to the education system? Yeah, uh, great, great question. So, yeah. first of all, um, you know, throughout the article on the issues of, of capitalism, mm-hmm. it's not an article about capitalism at all. But right. um, I rely a lot on Steve Ramirez's work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Steve Ramirez may be the world's most renowned scholar on this particular issue. And his point, among others, is that um, you know what we have in this country today, and which has led to the kind of uh, education system you just talked about, is not really capitalism. It's something very different. Um, and and I, I cite, as does Steve Ramirez, um, Adam Smith's original writings about the moral sentiments, which you know a, a really um, basic capitalism principle, according to Adam Smith and according to Steve Ramirez, mm-hmm. is that these are value-maximizing transactions for both sides of a transaction. It's, it's not you know one winner and one loser. Yeah. It's not a zero-sum game. There's a situation in which, um, and even, even the Pope would suggest that um, there are mutually beneficial transactions that can be sustained in a, in a framework of law, lawfulness. And um, so we have arguably, and you described this really well, in terms of the the way we fund education is not an outgrowth of capitalism. It's a different, yeah. different mindset. It's about you know keeping property taxes um, the primary funder of schools yeah. to maintain neighborhoods as they are. That's not necessarily a capitalist um, uh, position. And that's all I was suggesting. Yeah, no, no. And, and, and we, we can love capitalism right. as I do, and yeah. still want to think about ways to educate our students that are different. Right, and it does get into. Um, that does get into the, the the should it be funded off property tax, and I, I totally understand that. Um, right, so that's that was one of the points I did want. Yeah, I I did. Like I said before, I did hear where you were coming from here, and I just maybe I read too much into that point where I thought this was kind of a topic that you were discussing, but I do really like. Um, Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> you asked about intersubjectivity as well. Yes. And uh, that's just a, um, a word that um, educational psychologists use to describe what I described before, which is, you know, the, the, the core principle mm-hmm. of humanity mm-hmm. is the ability that we as humans have to understand, appreciate, and respect the thoughts, feelings, and intentions of others. And what's what's nice about that is it's of course compatible with the Pope's view of human nature, but it also is key to survival. So the idea is, you know, we used to think that um, survival was a a, a core human instinct, and of course it is. And the key to survival used to be thought fight or flight. Um, But what was missing in that story of survival was the need that humans have to cooperate to survive. 
and we now know that that's probably more primal yeah. than the need to compete. So the need to cooperate is more primal than yeah, the need to compete. Yes, uh, uh, infants well, first makes, first that makes cooperate. Me have to go back and I've done a lot of research on the Holocaust. So that make is going to make me have to go back and reevaluate yes. a lot of it. Yeah. So if humans were born yeah. to love, yeah. born to cooperate, as is, as the Pope says, and also mm -hmm. as Bruce Perry, who's an educational psychologist, saying, as, right. as brain research suggests, then what beats that out of us? Right. You know? Where do we where do we get cell culturated so fast to learn not to cooperate? Right, and one of the I did want to to that point. You mentioned in your paper, this is page twelve oh four that um, that our the one of the founders of our capitalist economic system actually espoused a much more nuanced understanding of the human and market behavior. Exactly. I've heard that described as forced altruism before, where you basically have to get you have to deliver a good or service to someone that they want and that makes you that will make you successful in the United States and that's a um, it's interesting I, yeah I do really like what you had to say in this point but that I've always found that a very interesting thing you don't really think of it like that but it, it is a in a sense forced altruism that right. Yeah, that that's the yeah. Well, I yeah. think you know this is this is a part of the, of the article where I yeah. do talk about Adam Smith and Steve Ramirez. Yeah, uh, I think you know his point of, uh, in the moral sentiments is um, the capitalism is is a good thing because it it forces us to think about the other. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to have a value maximizing exchange, you want to put yourself in the, in the person's shoes. Mm -hmm. And the next step is and to not destroy them but to help them because otherwise yeah. you know the long term is not going to be very healthy for you right so and there is a part in here where you talk about uh, patents well not directly but I, I parsed it from it with where you mentioned that um, you know the rights of the individual over their own bodies uh, also gave uh, gave them property right to the labors of their bodies so things that people invent and come up with that that's kind of where patent law gets into it but those patents eventually expire and that you know that the the framers the framers also recognize the value of collaboration in constructing uh, in constructing human knowledge right. that there's yeah that there is a a point of uh, you're able to you should be able to benefit off of your creation but eventually it should be one of my best friends in undergrad his name was Crawford Long the 4th Crawford Long the first invented modern anesthesia, mm -hmm. and he refused to get it patented because yeah. he thought it was such a wonderful invention that yeah. doctors should be able to have it immediately. Yeah, and it, on one sense, he is absolutely right. It was a necessity that should have been widespread quickly, and on the other sense, he left a lot of money on the table. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I, and I agree with you, and I think. But as far as the education of students is concerned, so how do you? I know you said you're, you, you don't. Envision yourself as a revolutionary out to remake the whole, but how do you, how? So, is it a, is it like, are, are you pro experimentation in education? I know you're, with the point you're trying to get here, but are you, um, let, just, I'm, I'm going to let you speak. Yeah, I, I think experimentation is, is yeah. great for lots of reasons. Um, yeah. Um, but what I'm really in favor of is, um, really understanding the ways in which people learn uh -huh. and, and, and latching on to that, articulating that, and really capturing that. Mm -hmm. And then framing educational institutions 
and policy around that. Okay. Uh, so starting with a very different point of view, if we really, really cared about the ways in which human beings learned, mm -hmm. what would our education system look like? And one of the points of the article that we're talking about is uh, something very different from what it looks like today. So Outside the class in terms of how we fund it, okay. but more importantly to this point, the way in which we teach. I think I missed that point. You're the one of the, or I think I forgot to mention that you're saying we should focus on how people learn, not that people learn. Yes, yes. because yeah. if we right. really understood the ways in which people learn, mm -hmm. we would teach. Theoretically, our goal would be yeah. to, to tailor to that. Tailor to that exactly. Yeah. Um, our goal should be learning, mm -hmm. um, and there are other values that get in the way of that sometimes, like you know, the perception of economic efficiency. Sure. But if we really, really cared about the ways in which law students learn, for example, mm -hmm. what would law school look like? It would look different from the way it looks today. Yeah. Um, maybe not radically different because we do a pretty darn good job of, you know, innovating toward the ways in which people learn. Mm -hmm. Legal education has changed a lot in the last 15 years to its credit, primarily based on a sense in which we now know how people learn and how they learn differently. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to make sure that we capture you know, all students in their different learning styles, not just a few. And that's a great change in legal education in the last 15 years. But we'd also, I think, you know, go beyond that and think about ways of assessing students that are more, more collective and collaborative. We do what I call documentation mm -hmm. of student learning. We wouldn't rely entirely on standardized tests, and we wouldn't rely entirely on individual learning. We talk about the ways in which um, an entire class learned. Sure. And we document that. So there are a number of ways in which we can get closer to the ideal. And again, knowing that we probably won't abandon what we've done for you know more than 100 years. Yeah. But we could augment what we've done with really good ways to make sure we reach all learners. I, I agree with that. And I also think that um, I think that with, when we do need to, for some reason, we've at, we've come to a point where, you know, the, you hear wasteful government spending all the time, but we've come to a point where failure at a certain, or, yeah, fa uh, failed attempts are considered fails unanimously. So we're afraid to even try unless we know it's going to be successful. I don't think, and I'm with you on this point, I don't think education should necessarily be considered that. I think we should be we should be focusing on how we can, because the smarter the next generation is, the better off the generation after them is, the better off we are as a country, the better off we are, you know. Again, we've reduced 75% of extreme poverty in the world because of our innovations, of the, this country's innovations in the last 50 years. Why would we stop there? It's the, you know, it's the vaccine argument. Right. We, we cured polio, we're just going to stop now. Right. Like, why would we not continue to strive further? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I hear you. You asked me about experimentation. Yes. Um, you, know, you probably know, um, as most students know, I'm a very strong proponent of design thinking. Okay. Design thinking is a human-centered approach to solving complex problems. And it had its origin really in product development in Silicon Valley. You know, what's the next greatest iPhone? How do you make a better wallet? Yeah. Um, but it's gone way, way beyond product development in Silicon Valley. It's become really um, a multidisciplinary way to solve problems that, in my view, should make its way into law school and legal mm -hmm. education. 
and I, it's one of my goals as dean to, to, to help that happen here at Loyola uh, in two ways. One is, I think it's a phenomenally important skill for our students to have when they graduate. Mm -hmm. And number two, I think it's a great way to grow an organization called the law school from a leadership point of view. Mm -hmm. And its premise is there, there are stages of design thinking. There's a template for it. The first stage is, is empathy. So not surprisingly, I'm a really big fan of empathy, sure. which it, it really is compatible with everything we talked about today. Yeah. Um, but that means, think, you know. I actually think you get that impression of you within the first five minutes of meeting you. Well, yeah. that's nice. But, yeah. um, but if you really cared about you know, your, your user, the student, mm -hmm. you'd really ask them how they learn, for example. Yeah. You would do really good focus groups. you survey them. you get some really good data quantitative and quality about what, they, what they're up to, and you'd, you'd shape all of your solutions around what their needs are, sure. their real needs are. Uh, empathy is not superficial, it's very, very profound, so yeah. you really want to know. And then you would design um, solutions to problems that are, are really compatible with the real, with the real needs. Mm -hmm. But the key with design thinking is experimentation. You, would, you develop a prototype, you pilot it, you learn from mistakes, you tweak it, you iterate, and you test it some more. And then the real premise is it's okay to fail. And it's okay to um, try something knowing that it may not be perfect, but it might be good enough. Mm -hmm. So for design thinkers, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Because you know that you're going to continually work on perfecting this thing. So we started this conversation by talking about making progress yeah. um, toward a more perfect union. It's a great design thinking approach. You keep yeah. on iterating until you get it better and better, knowing you probably won't ever get to the perfect ideal. Well, but you keep trying. It's, it's, you can't reach it. Right. Because as soon as you reach it, you go for something better. Yeah, yeah. and it's a mindset of continuous yeah. improvement and, mm -hmm. and of growth, not of, well, we're at a point now where we're going to be static and we'll look again in 10 years from now if we're doing any good. No, it's a, it's a constant mm -hmm. mindset of we're going to keep on learning and growing. So. Look what happened to Blockbuster. <laughs> exactly. Right. So it's, yeah, uh, how do you continue to innovate, continue to, yeah, well, yeah, that's one of the things that we strive for that we're never, it, it's perfectly reasonable that we're never going to attain it, and, right. but we're never going to attain perfection, but that's, there's no need to stop reaching for it. So I, uh, I know that we're running short on time. I wanted to, uh, we already touched on that. I wanted to jump in, or just wanted to make sure that we covered all our bases with this. So where, what's your, oh, this is the, with Solidaire. So what was, what's your vision of moving forward with Loyola, I guess? What's your, what are you, what are your, some goals you're hoping to accomplish as Dean? Well, I, I think, uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, um, I think one of the, the key components of leadership uh, among deans is to first articulate the distinctive strengths of the law school that you're in, mm -hmm. our community. Uh, and then make sure that they're authentic so that the entire community really says, yes, those are our strengths. They are unique, they're distinctive, they make us different. Mm -hmm. um, to articulate them, to make them authentic, to latch onto them, to capture them, and then to build on them. So I'm, I'm not a big believer in showing up weaknesses. Every place has got strengths and weaknesses. I believe firmly in building on strengths, even yeah. leveraging them, even marketing them, frankly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so much of our strengths um, come from, as I mentioned earlier, our Jesuit Catholic mission, but that permeates all that we do. It makes us an incredibly close-knit community. It makes us a very, uh, I think, welcoming community that's really sure. wanting to strengthen our diversity and inclusion here as one of our great defining strengths. Uh, and then it has um, 
all kinds of aspects to it in terms of what our, our, our strong programs are here. Health, you mentioned child law, yeah. advocacy is, our, is a, one of our great, our great strengths. Our alumni is a great strength. Our city is a great strength. Our university is actually a great strength for us here because we can approach problems from different angles. Um, once we know, and I think I do know, what our, our strengths are, it's my job really to build on them. And one way to do that is to, is you know, at the end of this article, there's a mnemonic, and I'm, I'm I'll, I teach the bar exam review course, and a lot of that is developing mnemonics, um, memory devices for students, and one um, mnemonic is the word solidarity here. So um, ways in which to build on our strengths can be framed in terms of the word solidarity, which is vital to the Jesuit Catholic mission sure. to accompany students, especially as they solve problems. But it happens to you know spell out the the ingredients I think of building on our strengths as well, mm-hmm. um, and they include what we talked about really, uh, in particular um, social con- constructivist learning, which includes perspective taking and um, experiential learning, but it also involves listening to students really carefully, uh, open-minded curriculum, uh, listening carefully to students and where they want to go, but also involves things like uh, documentation of student learning, and ultimately a a yearning to use our programs here to solve the world's um, social problems. And that spells out solidarity, depending on how you look at it. But but that's really um, vital to, I think, really just building on what is so great and distinctive about this law school. Well, that's uh, um, it's a it's a lofty goal, and I hope you hit it. Thank you. I appreciate for the opportunity yeah. to talk about it. And I, I appreciate you coming on, uh, Dean Kaufman. Again, thank yeah. you. All right. Thanks for hearing me out. Thank and, you. Uh, I appreciate. Yeah. Thank right. you. Yeah. And we hope to do it again. Absolutely. Thanks so go. much. Thank all right. He rocks in the treetops all the day long, hopping and a bopping and a singing his song. All the little birds on Jaybird Street look to hear the robin go tweet. You've been listening to Dialogue De Novo. Until next time, thanks for hearing us out. Dialogue De Novo is produced by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Executive producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Supervising producer Michael Kaufman. Technical producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Edited by Richard Leibovitz. Audio mixed by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Music written by Jimmy Thomas. Music performed by Bobby Day. Dialogue De Novo is a Loyola University Chicago School of Law student-initiated capstone project founded by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Technical production made possible by SoundCloud. Copyright 2018.